Morning, everybody. Um, our reading this morning um, is taken from John chapter 18, um, verses 12 to 27. John 18, from verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciple and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again Peter denied it. And at that moment a rooster began to crow. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you, Brenda. Well, a few weeks ago, we started our Lent initiative of uh, serving someone else in the congregation through Lent. Um, and you remember, we drew names out of a hat. And yesterday, it was my very great privilege to be taken on a hike um, by Sebastian and Ruby. And uh, we, we hiked round Silvermine, which was arduous, um, but it was a great joy. And we finished up with having a delicious um, sort of light breakfast on a rock um, at the top of the mountain there. So while some of you were building on the rock down in Lismore Avenue, Seb, Ruby and I were uh, building on a different rock up on the mountain. But it just reminded me that I think um, in our busy lives, it's very easy to sort of stay in our routines and not go out of our way to build relationships with one another. It's very easy to just do that, isn't it? I think it would be good for all of us to just step outside those routines in Lent and make that extra effort uh, to get into one another's lives, serve one another, 
and experience more of the reality of the Christian life. Good. Well, I do hope we've all got John 18 open in front of us, and um, I'm going to pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we know that your word is light for the path, food for our souls, strength for the weary, comfort and challenge. We pray that as we study your word this morning that you would speak to us in a personal, helpful and special way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it take to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, I'm not there thinking primarily of what does it mean to become a follower of Jesus in the sense of becoming a Christian, uh, although of course they're included. But I'm thinking rather more about what does it take to be following the Lord Jesus and to stay on the road all the way through to the end. Uh, is it about knowing certain facts about him? Uh, is it about having particular gifts and abilities? Uh, is it about observing a particular routine of religious practice, going to church, reading the Bible and so on? What does it take to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, our passage this morning provides the answer. And uh, I was reminded in my preparation that it's not what most people think. So think about it this way. You see, the early church wanted as many people as possible to become followers of Jesus so that they could enjoy the new life that they themselves were experiencing. And uh, that being the case, you would think, wouldn't you, that they would keep quiet about this particular event. Uh, because here we see the disciple who's been groomed for leadership, uh, the disciple with a great ministry career in front of him, falling flat on his face. You could hardly have a more embarrassing advertisement for the Christian message. I mean, surely the advisors and friends of the early church would have been urging the leaders to sweep this story under the carpet, wouldn't they? But apparently not. All four gospel writers include it in their record. And so we can't help asking, well, why? What are we meant to learn? The verse that holds the key to the passage is verse 14. Just uh, please put your eye on verse 14. Jesus has been brought in for questioning by the religious authorities, including a man called Caiaphas. And uh, there in verse 14, John says, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, the place where Caiaphas said that was all the way back in chapter 11. We're not going to look at it now. But in chapter 11, John 
described what Caiaphas said as prophecy. That's the word John used. And what he meant was that when Caiaphas was speaking, God was speaking through him. That's what prophecy is. Now, I think that's very helpful because if God was speaking through Caiaphas, well, it means that verse 14 in our passage this morning is God's verdict on the death of Jesus. It means that God wants you and me to know what he thinks about it. So what can we learn from verse 14? Two things in particular. The first is that God sees Jesus' death as substitution. Verse 14 says, Jesus died for the people, meaning instead of the people. He died so other people don't have to. He was their substitute. Uh, If you were with us last week, you'll remember that uh, there we saw that this involves far more than the disintegration of the body. Now, Jesus said, didn't he, that he must drink the cup of God's wrath. So verse 14 tells us that by his death, Jesus absorbed the full force of God's wrath on behalf of the people which people God is talking about, we'll see a little bit later. The second thing that verse 14 tells us is that God's verdict on the death of Jesus is that it was good. It would be good if one man died for the people. And here we have all kinds of problems because, of course, today the word good means almost nothing. It's banal, isn't it? If you look it up in a dictionary, it says that good means pleasant or enjoyable. Well, quite obviously, that's not the meaning in verse 14, is it? God did not mean that it was pleasant or enjoyable for one man to die for the people. Now, in the the Bible, the word good is a technical word that means according to plan. So cast your mind back to the book of Genesis and the account of creation and you'll remember that at the end of each day God looked at all that he'd made and he said, it is good. And what God meant was that it was according to plan. And here, in verse 14, God wants you and I to know that Jesus' death won't be a mistake It won't be a promising ministry career cut tragically short. No, he meant that it will be by God's design. It will be according to plan. So keep all of that in your mind as we come to the passage. And to help us see how it applies to you and me this morning, uh, I want to speak about this text under three different headings. Number one, the model disciple the model disciple. You see, the reason that this event is so very important is because in Peter, we're meant to see a reflection of ourselves. 
You see, in so many ways, Peter is a model disciple, isn't he? Uh, The other Gospels tell us that it was uh, Jesus who'd given him the name Peter, which means rock. And I take it that Jesus looked at Peter and saw wonderful gifts of leadership and, and courage. And it's not hard to see why. So earlier in John's Gospel, we hear about a time when many disciples began to desert Jesus. Uh, Being a a disciple was just becoming far too dangerous. And when Jesus asked the twelve if they also wanted to leave, you'll remember that it was Peter who spoke up. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Uh, You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, when Peter said it, it took tremendous courage to do that. Uh, If we'd been there, I wonder how many of us would have been brave enough to say it. And then only a few hours before the events in our passage this morning, uh, Jesus explained to his disciples that he must leave them and they won't be able to follow And once again, it was Peter who said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Well, now come with me to verse 15 in our passage. Verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. And we say to ourselves, well, yes, of course. I mean, that's what we'd expect. The others are keeping a bit of a low profile, But here's Peter, the model disciple, following Jesus, even when it's most dangerous to do so. And uh, if we were reading the story for the first time, we might be expecting Peter to mount some kind of commando-style rescue operation. And you can imagine the headlines in the newspaper, Rocky Rescues Jesus, something like that. Because the point is that All the background information we have on Peter means that we are totally unprepared for his failure. So notice, please, that the shock of Peter's failure is highlighted for us by the way that John tells the story. Because in the verses that follow, there are two tests happening side by side. Just follow this. On the one hand, there is the test of Jesus, and then on the other hand, there is the test of Peter, the model disciple. So, for example, while Jesus is tied up and he's cross-examined by the most powerful man in Jerusalem, Peter is absolutely free to leave whenever he chooses, and uh, instead of being questioned by a fearsome, terrifying religious expert... He's questioned by a servant girl. Again, in verse 20, Jesus tells the truth. Do you notice that? I've spoken openly to the world, says Jesus. I said nothing in secret. And for his trouble, he receives a blow to the face. But Peter, without any of those pressures, lies. And verse 18, I think, is a very graphic description. It's a picture, isn't it, of how Peter's position has changed. Just look at verse 18. 
It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now, can you see what's happening there? Peter denies Jesus, and having done so, he moves closer to the enemies of Jesus. Not just physically, but spiritually as well. And he shares in the warmth of their fire. And within just a few minutes, Peter has denied any relationship with Jesus. Not once, but three times. So, dear friends, the point is that if Peter, who is a model disciple, with all of his marvellous gifts and abilities, can't follow Jesus, well then, however gifted and capable we might be, without a miracle, we can't follow him either. And I wonder if that might be a fresh thought for some of us this morning. You see, how many of us have said to ourselves, you know, I'm absolutely determined to follow Jesus. I've got so much to give. And uh, in no time at all, uh, we found that either through what we've said or the way we've behaved, we've denied the Lord. I've done it. I suspect you have too. And so often what follows is that we find that we're warming ourselves at the fires of the world and beginning to identify with the enemies of Jesus. I'm thinking at the moment of the very sad story of the daughter of a friend of ours in the UK. Uh, She was raised in a Christian home. She knew her Bible inside out. Uh, As a student, she was involved in youth ministry and then later in young adults' work. She was a brilliant scholar, uh, went to Oxford, got a first-class degree, and for many years she was a model disciple. She was exceptionally gifted, and her parents were never in any doubt that whatever career she might choose, she would always be involved in Christian work of some kind. Everyone who met her said the same thing. But then, almost out of the blue, she married a non-Christian, And now, 20 years later, she's a convinced atheist. What's the point? Well, the point, friends, is that Bible knowledge is important. Gifts and abilities are important. Enthusiasm to serve is important. But on their own, these things do not make a true follower of Jesus. Something else is needed. What is it? Well, with the shock of Peter's failure fresh in our minds, let's move on to the second idea I want to plant in your heads this morning, which is the faithful priest. The faithful priest. Now, if you read the story carefully, there are at least two high priests. Verse 13, the soldiers have arrested Jesus. They've brought him before a man called Annas, who'd been the high priest just a few years before this, I think from about AD 6 to AD 15, something like that. Then a bit later, in verse 24, 
Annas sends Jesus off to Caiaphas, and he's the current high priest. Now, friends, their role in the story is exceedingly important because the office of high priest was not a human institution. It wasn't something that the temple authorities had dreamed up. It was an office created by God for an extremely specific purpose. And to show you what it is, won't you please keep one finger in John 18 and turn back with me to Exodus, to the second book of the Bible, and chapter 29. Exodus 29. Because this is where we find out why God instituted the office of high priest. Exodus 29, and we'll pick it up at verse 44. You might want to read the whole chapter later. But verse 44, God here is speaking to Moses, and God says, So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Why? Verse 45. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, friends, can you see that the high priest was God's provision for his people in order that he might dwell among them and uh, so that they might become true followers of the living God? And elsewhere, the Old Testament tells us that the way the high priest would achieve that was by offering the sacrifices prescribed by God for the forgiveness of sin. Now, with all of that in our minds, please do come back to John chapter 18 and let me ask you a question. When Annas and Caiaphas got out of bed in the morning, what should have been the first thing on their mind? You see, they should have been thinking, what do I need to do today to help the people be true followers of the living God. Isn't that right? Shouldn't that have been their first thought? But you see, instead, when these men find themselves face to face with the living God in the person of Jesus, not only have they failed to recognize him, but they're actively scheming to kill him. They're trying their absolute hardest to remove the presence of God from the people. So it's the exact, exact opposite of the job they were meant to be doing. By every measure, they have utterly failed in their responsibility. But there is another high priest in the story. On 15 occasions, the letter to the Hebrews describes Jesus as the true high priest. And the contrast in our passage in John 18 makes the point. Because on the one hand, uh, here are Annas and Caiaphas, the official high priests, 
more concerned about themselves than the people, and they're plotting and they're scheming against the Son of God, they think they're in the driving seat. On the other hand, there's Jesus. And he is actually the one who's truly in control. And not for his own advantage, but purely out of love for others, out of love for Peter who denied him, and out of love for you and me, this faithful high priest prepares to offer just one sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, the sacrifice of himself. How does this connect to Peter? Well, Peter, you see, had been so sure, hadn't he, so confident that he could follow Jesus no matter what. He'd even said to Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. But when the rooster crowed, Peter remembered that Jesus had said, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And in that moment, Peter knew that he'd failed. And the other Gospels tell us that he went outside and he wept bitterly. So you see, think about it. In that situation, what Peter needed was someone to deal with his failure. He needed the sacrifice of Jesus, the faithful high priest, so that his sin could be forgiven and his relationship with the Lord could be restored. And if we want to be followers of Jesus, that is precisely what we need today. And yet, dear friends, so often the Jesus that is presented to us is completely different. A few years ago, I was in Joburg to speak at an outreach for businessmen and a friend collected me at the airport. And on our way to the meeting, we were driving through one of the more prosperous suburbs up there, and we came across a new church with a car park probably the size of three rugby pitches. It was absolutely massive. And my first thought was, well, this is absolutely marvelous, you know, gospel work in an affluent suburb like this. This is terrific. And when I commented on that to my friend, he said, no, I'm sorry, Simon, uh, you won't hear the gospel there. Uh, the message there on Sunday morning is that Jesus is your life coach. There's no talk about sin or forgiveness in that church. The people won't stomach it. Now, friends, I do hope you know that that kind of Christianity is absolutely hopeless. It's actually not Christianity at all. No, because you see, what the young Christian needs to know as much as you and me is not whether Jesus can help them to be more successful at work or whether Jesus can conjure up um, some more fulfilling relationships. Not that. No, they need to know that when they stumble and deny the faith in some way, that Jesus is their faithful high priest and they can be forgiven. That actually is ABC Christianity, isn't it? Every Christian needs to know it. What a pity that so few do. Just to make sure we've got this firmly anchored in our minds, let's come to the third idea I want to leave you with this morning, 
which is the gracious Lord. The gracious Lord. I hope we can all agree that at the end of chapter 18, things are looking very dark indeed for Peter. The model disciple has fallen flat on his face. All hope of a successful ministry career has flown out the window. But of course, it's not the end of the story, is it? A few hours later, uh, Jesus dies. Uh, We're going to look at his death more closely in a couple of weeks' time. And then Jesus is raised to life. And right at the very end of John's Gospel, there's an extremely moving account of how Peter was restored. And so as we close, I'd like you to page forward in your Bible to John 21. The context is that the risen Lord Jesus appears to the disciples on a beach. They share a meal together. And uh, afterwards, Jesus takes Peter on one side. We'll pick it up at verse 15. Verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now friends, this is the secret of what it takes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. As we've said, in chapter 18, it looked, didn't it, as if it was all over for Peter. Can't imagine that he'll ever do anything useful for the Lord ever again. But you see, Jesus only wants to know one thing. Do you truly love me? Never mind about your gifts and abilities. Never mind about your mess-ups. Never mind about your past achievements. Do you truly love me? Love me. And you see, the disciple who truly loves Jesus is the one whose sin, like Peter's, has been exposed and forgiven. You see, Peter couldn't actually see his own sin until Jesus exposed it. But immediately his sin was revealed 
so that Peter could see it and repent of it, Jesus cancelled it. And Peter began to love Jesus in a much deeper way. Can you see that? Can you say that about yourself? If you are, you're on the right track. If you can't, well, wouldn't it be a good thing to find time today to do business with God? Ask him to show you the sins which he knows all about, but which perhaps at the moment you can't see. And as he reveals them to you, ask Jesus to be your faithful high priest and take them away. Remember, he died for you. And finally, this is a lovely detail, finally, notice, won't you, that instead of putting Peter on probation, which is what we might be tempted to do, now instead of putting him on probation for a few months till he sorted himself out, Jesus immediately gives him an opportunity to prove his love. Feed my sheep. Well, that's a word to all of us, isn't it? Let's pray. Well, gracious God, we do thank you for preserving this remarkable story of your mercy and forgiveness. You know each one of us far better than we know ourselves. You know that our hearts are far colder than we care to admit and that we can't always see our own sin. Lord, please deal with us as mercifully as you dealt with your servant Peter. And then, Lord, please use each one of us to reach out to others this Easter with the good news. And we ask it for Christ's sake.